Christianity has deep African roots. And so as we talk about our theme for this month, Christianity being the white man's religion, quote unquote, that is a historical myth. It's not true. From its earliest beginnings, Africa and the Middle East had a heavy influence on Christianity. Even the doctrines that we hold dear began in Africa. And so this morning, we are going to take a look at that. We're going to take a look at this African history, this African heritage of Christianity. And on, on the handouts, on the notes, we're going to go through uh, We're going to go through uh, two lesson outcomes. This is our hope for the lesson before we leave today. The first one is to understand how the African fathers preserved doctrinal integrity. Our African fathers fought for the truth of the gospel so that it would not be hindered. So that God's overwhelming, all-encompassing, graceful truth can be kept intact. Then secondly, we're going to dive into, we want to recognize God's providence <coughs> and faithfulness in history. God has and will continue to raise up men and women that will contend for the faith. Jude 3. Right. So before we dive into this side of the board right here, I'm going to go through our background. In 8070, something happens that Jesus predicted in, in the Gospels. Uh, the Roman Emperor Vespasian marches into Jerusalem and he destroys it. The city is destroyed. It is in ruins. And what happens, a couple things happen. One, the Jews that were fighting off Roman rule, because remember, Israel or the Jews hated Gentile rule. They could not stand being under Gentiles. They never liked it. And so the Jews, for one last time, tried to hold a revolt against Rome. The Jewish historian Josephus records this in his book, The Wars of the Jews. So Vespasian comes into Jerusalem and he destroys it as Christ predicted. Something happens, the Jews scatter. Many of them go to Africa. Others throughout the Mediterranean, but many of them flee to Africa. That's important for a few reasons. One, because we start seeing how Africa starts to become a seedbed uh, for Christian doctrine because of that. But then also this, Christianity now has to stand on its own two feet. Because for the longest, the mindset was Christ Christians and Jews are together because the Romans saw Jews and Christians as lumped in together. These Christian folks are just a branch off sect of Judaism, right? Of the law of Moses, they're the same people. But when Jerusalem gets destroyed, Something happens. Jews and Christians, they scatter. And so now for the first time, the Christian faith no longer has any spiritual or physical ties to, do, to, to Judaism. And so now comes the next phase of our Christian faith is how do we formulate all of this? 
And this is where Africa comes in at. For the next 300 years, the Christian faith is involved in a series of doctrinal disputes. And this is where our African fathers come in. Before I go into this, uh, any questions, feedback, comments, before I dive into this next section right here? What you just said about for the next 300 years. Yeah, yeah. So after everyone scatters and Africa becomes the seedbed, I would say, of the Christian faith and the Christian doctrine, the next 300 years, Christianity is going to go through a series of councils, a series of disputes, a series of controversies, so that doctrine can not only be formulated, but also kept intact and preserved. All right. So our first one occurs in the third century, and it is Praxius versus Tertullian. Has anybody ever heard of these dudes before? Three people. <laughs> Three people, maybe four, right? So, quick backstory. So, Praxius is a teacher from Asia. Remember, Christianity, after, after, after Jerusalem, is to, to destroy people scattered, right? Throughout Asia, Egypt. And Praxius is an Asian teacher. And he creates this idea called modalism. So think about this. The Christian faith and Judaism has always had this mindset of God is one, right? God is one. We are a monotheistic religion. We have one God, right? The pagans thought these Christians worship God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Are they polytheistic? No. We serve one God almighty, creator of all things, who rules all. But Praxius is like, God is one person. So Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they can't all be different because God is one, right? So he creates this idea called uh, modalism that says this, God is all three of these beings, God, Son, Holy Spirit. But he changed into each one of them. So first, God was the creator, right, that made all things. Oh, now God becomes Jesus, the one that walks the earth, the one that died, the one that rose, the one that resurrected, right, the one that ascended. Oh, so now God becomes the Holy Spirit to live inside every believer. And... Some people agree with that, right? But let me ask you this. What is, what's wrong with that doctrine? What is wrong with saying, oh, first God was creator, then God was the son, and now he's the Holy Spirit? How does that hinder the Christian doctrine? What does that do? Come on. Just to clarify. Yeah. 
in this modalism, mm -hmm. is it sequential or is he like a changeling going back and forth between the three? That's a great question. It is sequential. It's so sequential. God was the father. Okay. He ceased to be the father to become the son. Then he ceased to become the son and then he became the Holy Spirit. How does that hinder the truth of the gospel? Right. That's right. If he's if he's no longer um, father and he goes back to son, that does explain events that happen where Jesus actually calls on the father. He says, "Father, my heart's trouble. Speak to right. all these people." Right. That's exactly where this messes up the the Christian doctrine because it is based on the premise of. Man, God is in relationship with himself, all three persons, for all time. It messes up the relational aspect of our God. We, we serve a relational God, y'all. Since the beginning of time, he has been relational, even with himself, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And what Praxis does is he begins to mess up all that. So as these guys have said, if Praxis is true, then Jesus praying to God in Gethsemane. And at the baptism where God speaks to Jesus and the Holy Spirit descends on him and, and Luke and the gospel writers will record all this, then that stuff is no longer true. The Bible says Jesus lives to intercede before us. He is, he is, at, the, he is at the right hand of God right now at the throne of heaven interceding for us right now to the Father. Right? He is our advocate. And if modalism is true then we may have an intercessor or a mediator <clears throat> but who's he mediating to? <laughs> the whole Christian doctrine falls apart. Enter our guy Tertullian who is from Carthage, Africa. He winds up becoming the bishop of Carthage in Africa. And Tertullian immediately refutes this. In fact, it is because of Tertullian we have the word the Trinity. Tertullian is the first person that gives us the word Trinity. This is what he writes. He says of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all are of one by unity of substance while the mystery of the economy is still guarded which distributes the unity into a trinity placing in order the three persons the father the son and the holy spirit as time goes on praxius and his theory eventually becomes heresy. It is deemed heresy, and the church no longer accepts it. But it took Tertullian, this African pastor, this African bishop, and others like him to step on the forefront and defend the doctrinal integrity of the church. Tertullian is also called the father of Latin Christianity because he was the first uh, person 
to write uh, Christian defenses, uh, Christian commentaries uh, in Latin. Usually when we think of the Latin language, we think of maybe, you know, possibly like the European dialect, right? But it was an African church father that becomes the, that becomes the founder and formulator of Latin Christianity. Now, I will say this, Praxius's theory, even though it's been deemed heresy, is still practiced in some circles of Christianity. There's this uh, sect in Christianity called Oneness Pentecostals. And so if we think about the Pentecostal faith, right, charismatic, you know, part of Christianity, they don't believe that, but there is an outside wing of this called oneness Pentecostals that still believe in modalism, right? And so even today, there are still traces of this. But what these guys did centuries ago was they officially condemned it. So now there is no question and there is no doubt that we serve one God in three persons that upholds this, and we uphold this doctrinal truth so the integrity of the gospel can be kept intact. Mm -hmm. All right. Before I go on to the next one, uh, questions, comments, anything else? Yeah, I just think it's amazing. I mean, you think about how Christianity emerged out of Judaism, which is fiercely committed to this one God, mm -hmm. and then you have these Jews worshiping Jesus and yet saying there's still one God, that is genuinely really confusing. It is. Like, that's one of the hardest things to explain to, like, my kids when I'm explaining the faith. So the, it's just incredible that, that, like, like, I think if you just put up modalism and put up the orthodox view and we were both reading them, I mean, half of us would be like, ah, you know, like, these are genuinely complicated things. So it's amazing that Tertullian was this, like, intellectual force who like mm -hmm. worked it out. Mm -hmm. If you go this way, it's going to create enormous problems. If you yeah. go this way, then we're going to be faithful to the scripture. You know, yeah. I just think yeah. that's incredible how how like he, he he wasn't just defending orthodoxy. He was figuring out what it mm -hmm. meant to be orthodox. Right. Figure right. out what it meant to hear the scriptures faithfully. Uh, in these tensions, you know, mm -hmm. so I just I love I love that. Yeah, um, and it's so, so powerful what you're presenting. And so, Tertullian, his background was an attorney. He was a lawyer before he became a Christian. He was trained in rhetoric. He was trained in defense. He was trained in speaking. He was trained in breaking down clues. And so, what I love about God is, He takes everything that we are. He takes everything that we that we are as people and when he saves us and when he changes us that stuff doesn't go away but he forms it and he shapes it into a person of his use and so now these gifts and skills that we have acquired becomes almost supernatural by the, by the spirit of God we become change agents and advocates advocates for his gospel Yes. He does that to all of yes. us. All of us have different gifts and talents, but when God saves us, oh man, what we thought was natural when God put that supernatural on it, y'all, <laughs> man, 
it becomes something awesome. And Tertullian is an example of that. George? Yes. Was Tertullian a Jew first? He was all African. Okay. Mm -hmm. He was born in Carthage. Mm -hmm. He was what Jewish? Born in Carthage. Mm -hmm. And I want to say Carthage is, right now, I want to say it's modern day either Tunisia or Algeria currently. But he, he was not, he, he was a Gentile in Africa, right? Because there, there would have been Jews born. Yeah, so Tertullian was born strictly African, so he would have been considered a Gentile. Yep, mm -hmm. he was not a Jew, yes. And this was like... 8300. So this is third century. So this is between the late 100s and early 200 AD. So getting into the third century. Mm -hmm. Yep. Where did this uh, take place? This, uh, uh, this whole conversation. Yeah, so this whole conversation, particularly Tertullian's defense, took place when he was still the Bishop of Carthage. <coughs> so of course there's some travel here or there, right? Because, you know, these guys are church fathers, so the Mediterranean and the Asian worlds, like, there was frequent travel, but a majority of his ministry as a bishop took place in the context of Carthage. Alright, alright, so these are, these are great questions, so, alright, great feedback. So the next one is uh, Arius versus Athanasius. I heard a clap in the background, yeah, okay. yeah, alright. So this, y'all, is actually in, in his book, Turning Points, where he breaks down um, key points that were decisive in the history of Christianity. Mark Knowles says that this controversy here is, the one, is one of the most important. Because here we have Arius, who was a Christian priest in Libya, in Africa. And he starts this controversy that, again, trying to hold up this view that God is one, right? God is one. He tries to uphold this view that says, well, Jesus was begotten, right? He was, if he's the firstborn of all creation, as Colossians says, and if he is, and if God is one, again, like Praxius, God can't be three people, then Jesus was made by God. And therefore, if he's made by God, Seth, he's not eternal. So now we have this theory of Jesus, the firstborn of our creation. But there was a time when he was not. There was a time when the <laughs> son was not. God made the son the first of all things. So that holds up this theory, right? Question. If Jesus was never eternal, how does that mess up the gospel? <coughs> Anyone can take a stab at this one. If Jesus... Come on. I was, was going to say, the, the, there's think about when Abraham was sitting with... Uh, Three, three different entities or when you had the the, was the fiery furnace and there's some there's somebody else who was who was there and it was claimed to be the sun there were there, there, just throughout the old, old testament there's sprinkles of, the, of, of 
God in three persons mm -hmm. throughout all the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes a good question. Yeah. So he brought up a good point. Like, even in the Old Testament, like, there's pictures of God and maybe in, in the Holy Spirit in Christ right now. Many scholars believe that when you see the Spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament, that's the pre-incarnate Christ. So a lot of them believe, like, this is Jesus before he officially becomes God in the flesh, right? Because he's the Spirit of the Lord and he's speaking as, a, as, as the representative of God, right? So many scholars believe that. But getting back to Arius and Athanasius, here's my point. If Jesus is not eternal, he cannot be God. And if he cannot be God, then this whole premise of Christmas and Advent and the God-man becoming flesh falls apart. Because only God can be perfect. A man cannot be perfect. Only God can be perfect. So if Jesus is not God, if he's not eternal, he can't save us. This is where the Christian doctrine falls apart with this. This is officially called the Aryan controversy. So in steps my dude, <laughs> Athanasius, from Alexandria, Egypt. His nickname was the Black Dwarf because he was a dark-skinned brother, but he was height-challenged a little bit. <laughs> that joker was smart. And he's like, no, this, this, mm-mm, mm-mm. In fact, one of his best, in fact, one of his best uh, and most well-known essays was called On the Incarnation. And he writes, disputing Arius. And I'm like, man, why two brothers got to go back and forth like this? Really? But Athanasius says, yo, Jesus was begotten. He was not made. He's of the same substance of as the Father. He's eternal. He always has been. He always will be. And he has two natures. He is fully God and fully man. Regarding this, Athanasius writes, being God, he became a human being. And then as God, he raised the dead. Healed all by a word. And also changed water into wine. But as a human being, he felt thirst and tiredness. And he suffered pain. They all occurred in such a way that they were joined together. And the Lord, who marvelously performed those acts by his grace, was one. <clears throat> he is fully God and fully man. One of, the, one of the great things about Christmas, and we just celebrated a couple of months ago, is we have this miracle of a of a God, of God who enters time Mary had to be a virgin when she had Jesus she had to have a baby that was not by, that was not from a natural man because we're stained because of our sin from our loins our DNA is marred with sin so there had to be a supernatural birth that occurred for God to enter time. 
And so if Arius wins, if his doctrine or if, if what he's saying wins, man, we have an issue. Because now the whole Christian doctrine falls apart. Speak up. All right. Appreciate it, Kevin. So enter Constantine. Emperor Constantine. Right. So Constantine has been a controversial figure in Christian history, right? A lot of people dispute whether what he did by making Christianity the main religion of Rome has been controversial. But here's one good thing Constantine did. Was Constantine notices that this controversy is disrupting Christian unity. And Constantine sees the Christian religion or the faith of, of, or the faith of the believers as a way to unify the Roman Empire. So Constantine is like, hold up. We have to have a council to settle this dispute because this is causing too much disturbance. So enter 325 AD, we have the Council of Nicaea. And sadly, Athanasius is not alive when this happens. He dies roughly a couple of years before the Nicene Creed is officially inaugurated and Arius is condemned to heretic. But Athanasius' fight for decades is what helped to shape the Nicene Creed. This is what the Nicene Creed says for, for my church history folks. This is what it says. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is, of the substance of the Father, the God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, things in heaven and things on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was made flesh and became man, suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended into the heavens and is coming to judge the living and the dead. And this happened as a result of these brothers going back and forth and Constantine being like, hey, man, we got to settle this right here. What's the issue? And guess what? They, from a council standpoint, oh, they went at it. <laughs> oh, they went at it. This one like no Facebook, Twitter beef. <laughs> These mugs went at it. But it was with the purpose, though. So regarding these, these African councils, which also, side note, um, is a beautiful portrait of African Christianity, is how they did their councils, how they came together to formulate and to preserve doctrinal truth. They did this. They used rigorous scriptural, inqui scriptural inquiry. That means when they debated something, they used the scriptures to go back and forth with it. It wasn't philosophy. It wasn't what you heard from your, from your teacher, from your professor. They said, yo, let's dive into the scriptures and figure, out what, and figure out what it says. And then from there, judgments were made. Votes were reported and debates summarized. So, you say this, 
You say this, you say this. Okay, somebody record that, report that. What the scriptures say, let's get this thing down to its most minute level. Is it doctrine? Is it not? And history records that what Athanasius fought for won out. Another thing about Athanasius, uh, and, and when I read this, it, 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 it cut me to the core because I, I saw his life and, and I was like, yo, when God wants you to be something, you're going to be that. <laughs> right? For example, he was made Bishop of Alexandria after... Uh, his, after his bishop and mentor, uh, Alexander of Alexandria, dies. But people saw Athanasius's mind, his leadership, his wisdom, his humility, and they wanted him to be bishop. But he was like, I don't want to be bishop. I don't want to be bishop. And he actually left Alexandria. The people wanted him to be bishop so bad, they brought him back forcefully and made him bishop. <laughs> right? <laughs> they made him, he's like, all right, all right, I'll be bishop. But I say that because humility, man. This joker had a mind that was, that literally, as scholars say, put fear into Arius and his defenders. And this dude that could destroy him all in a debate was like, I just want to be about God's business. I don't care about no title, no leadership. I don't care about having an office. I don't care about all this stuff. And God was like, in his sovereignty, this is the man God can use. This is the woman God can use. And I say that because so many times, like we think we have to position ourselves to be in places and circumstances. And God is like, I just want faithful people. Yeah. God just wants faithful men and women. And when, that, and when we're faithful, positions will find us. So a uh, couple, uh, last month I had lunch with a mentor of mine. And it was a, it was a hard conversation. Because I had to get some stuff out on my heart that I had been wrestling with. And it was pride. And my mentor told me this. He was like, Men fight in position for titles, but God gives positions. Athanasius was positioned by God to help preserve doctrinal integrity. And we all feel the benefits of this brother that was like, I don't care about being bishop. I just want to uphold the truth of scripture yeah. <clears throat> and let God be the judge of what happens next. Right. Praise God for brothers like that. All right, we got about 20 minutes left. Before I move on to our last guy, Pelagius and Augustine, <clears throat> 
uh, any questions or comments about anything we've discussed so far. Changeability is a human concept. Mm -hmm. We are changeable. Everything around us changes. And so a being that doesn't change is um, mysterious and other. And a being that isn't created doesn't make sense to us either because we are created and we are creatures. And, um, so not only did were they committed to the reason and logic of scripture, but they were also committed to the mystery of God mm -hmm. and not trying to understand him completely. Mm -hmm. And even in our own um, journeys, being sensitive to the ways that we try to <coughs> fit God into our categories to be able to understand him and manage him, mm -hmm. and that um, he won't be fully understood and managed, and that both of these saints were committed to that mystery <coughs> and willing to let that be who God is and him be completely other. Yeah. Yeah, we will spend an eternity. Come on, come on. Well, I know you want to comment about that. You respond to that? Yeah, come on, sure, sure, yeah. Well, I was just say, I love Athanasius, too. Um, and I think it's just, like, so important. Athanasius was, like, violently exiled from his home seven times. Mm -hmm. Because the church was going back and forth on whether he was right or this other group was right. And the church fathers, if you read them, they are universally cared about, care about the poor. They care about justice. They are engaged in the social issues of their day. And this brother was willing to be exiled seven times for theology. So it matters that we know how to speak truly about God. I don't know that there's one person living, myself included, who's as committed to caring for actual humans and as committed to the truth about God as these brothers were. And because of that, like this Nicene Creed, I mean, a lot of us come from like traditions that don't do the creeds. There are three or four billion Christians on planet Earth. The vast majority, like 97%, see the Nicene Creed as one of their foundational statements. And the three largest communions, Catholics, Orthodox, and Episcopalians, recite it most weeks of the year. That's right. They're saying this as a say, like this, you know, so it's just like incredible to think about this guy who's willing to like go to, like willing to die for being able to say, this is how we name the mystery, not define it, not hedge it in, but how we, we adequately worship God. I mean, it's just, like as you're saying that, like his humility and all that, like how do you stay humble when you're fighting with somebody for 50 years? It's just incredible. I love it. Thank you for like, Reminding us yeah, oh, and, and also more thing. Uh, some of these guys are unreadable. <laughs> Athanasius is yes. not. You can go home and Google on the incarnation Athanasius and read it, and it's beautiful, and it will be helpful to you. It's right there, you know. And so this stuff is like still with us. I got my little nerd with me right here. Yeah, nerd, nerd now. I, I hear you, bro. I hear you, nerd now. George was, and this might be just a really stupid question, no. but since since. There was a lot of, I mean, seven times as violently. Uh, was there a lot of bloodshed during this time on either side? I mean, from what, from what I've read, there wasn't a lot of bloodshed. It was just a lot of doctrinal disputes to where the church was literally divided. I mean, like you mentioned, he was exiled seven times. 
And I was going to share that, but I didn't want to make this an Athanasius biography <laughs> session. But he was exiled over and over. In fact, Arius, his counterpart, was exiled. So this was like serious stuff politically. There was a lot of political maneuvering going on with this. It wasn't violent, but politics was in the play. And so Constantine was finally like, hey, man, look, we're going to settle this right here. We're going to bring the best Christian minds together, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to figure this joint out. <laughs> what is it going to be? Come on. So, like, what primary scriptures were they using, um, like, in the council to argue that Jesus is that's a great question. I can give some I read. <laughs> but the actual verses they use, I can give you some, though. All right. So regarding Athanasius, I read John 1.1 1, 1 and John 10.30. In fact, the whole book of John is just great because it talks about God becoming man, right? The word became flesh, so John's always good. Colossians 1, uh, 15 through 17. And then Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, where he says pretty much that God spoke to our forefathers in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken through his son, I'm paraphrasing, who is the exact representation of the Father. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. And then lastly, we have my boy, Augustine. Augustine, Augustine, Augustine. Everyone say it right. And this last one took place in the fifth century. And this was uh, Pelagius versus Augustine of Hippo. So Pelagius was actually uh, a British monk or from, from, his ge from his geographical uh, biography where Britain is right now. And he was a monk. So for, for those of you that don't understand or that had trouble grasping early Christianity and monks, monks would retreat from the city to be away from the corruption, lasciviousness, and licentious living that they would see. And they would retreat to wilderness outskirt areas to just be in contemplation and solitude and worship and study because they want to separate themselves from quote unquote the sinful influences of society, right? So Pelagius was a monk and he is grieved with the moral corruption that he's seeing in society, right? He is grieved by what he's seeing. But then also Augustine writes his book, Confessions, where in his book, Augustine just lays out how he is a sinner that cannot help himself. And he is in dire need of God's grace to rescue him. He is in dire need of God's grace and power to, to, to give him what he, cannot have, what he does not possess to not only be saved, but to live for him. Augustine writes how he was a wreck, but the grace of God has saved him. 
Pelagius is baffled by it. He's like, huh? You need God to save you? To pick you up? You need that? Right? So between the moral corruption that he's seeing and reading Augustine's uh, writings, he develops this idea that pretty much says man is neutral. Man has no sinful nature. Each human being is made and created free and can choose for his own how he wants to live. There's nothing in man that keeps him from obeying God and living righteously. That's what Pelagius is saying. What's wrong with that? I'm jacked up too. Right. We all jacked up, bro. We all jacked up. But this is what he was saying. Pelagius. So enter... Augustine of Hippo, who was also from, uh, who was also from Africa. In fact, many scholars believe that outside of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, <coughs> Augustine of Hippo is the most influential person in, in Christian history. So you would have Jesus, you would have Paul, you have Augustine. So he and Augustine uh, have a debate. So this is what Pelagius says. I wish I put this in the notes, but y'all forgive me. I can email this to you, so y'all just email me and I'll give it to you. Pelagius believed that before the fall, humans were innocent and had free will. That's correct, right? But he says that we were mortal. He says mankind was never made immortal. Even before the fall, mankind will always be mortal. He says after the fall that there's only spirits of death, that Adam is the only bad example, and everyone does not have inheriting guilt or sinful nature. He says that grace is conditional based on the person's response for salvation. We're always free, and we can choose to follow Adam or God's righteousness. And he finally says that sin is the act of the will, and there's no original sin. Yo, man, imagine if we believed that. Imagine if we went to church every day saying, hey, I'm no sinner. God, I can do this. We straight. There'd be no need for Jesus, wouldn't there? There'd be no need for Christ. So in steps Augustine, who refutes Pelagius by saying, not only before the fall were we innocent, we were immortal. Because God said in Genesis, the day you eat from this tree, you shall die. Mankind was not made to die. We were made to be immortal. In fact, we still will live forever. The question is, where are you going to live at? <laughs> right? 
after the fall, we have spiritual and physical death. When I talk to people about salvation and they in, in, in the simple nature, and they say, I don't believe in, I don't believe in, in that. First thing I say is, but you die, right? They're like, well, yeah, I die. Okay. Will you ever escape natural death? Like, no, I will die. Whether you are a Christian or an unbeliever, everyone knows you will die. Paul says in Romans 5, the fact that we know that there is sin in our loins is the fact that we die. Before there was even a law given to the children of Israel, before the law of Moses was even given, we knew sin was in the world because we died. That's how we know that there was corruption in our loins. So the mere fact that one day I will die shows that there is corruption in this natural man. And Augustine is fighting to uphold that. He says, regarding Augustine says, that salvation is a special work of God's word, Jesus, and the Spirit. Necessary to begin and continue. It's necessary to begin, but also necessary to continue as we believe and repent. The Christian life is a life that is continuous repentance and confession. Repentance and confession. And that is a hallmark of the Spirit of God living inside of us, convicting us of our sin and our need for Jesus. It's where we continually draw back to the well, as my grandma say, that never runs dry. Augustine says that we are enslaved to sin. And the only laws that we can really obey are civil laws not God's righteous law. And then finally he says that the sinful nature is inherent. And our sinful nature produces the necessity to sin. What does he mean by that? Paul says in Romans 7, he was like, he says the fact that I have sinned shows the weakness of the law. For example, the law says thou shalt not covet. But why is it the moment I heard thou shalt not covet, something in me immediately wants to covet? <laughs> thou shalt not steal. Why is it all of a sudden I heard do not steal, something in me all of a sudden wants to steal? Just wants to cross that line just because someone said don't do it. <clears throat> That's the sinful nature that lives in me, that lives in all of us, and that is the very thing that separates us from God. Hence the need for a Savior that will not and did not do that. So they go at it. They go at it. There's a series of writings, and I don't have quotes for these guys, but eventually Pelagius his theory or his belief is condemned. But Augustine's wasn't accepted widely either. In fact, they believe Augustine was an innovator 
Because his view of faith began with God and not human decision. So both so even though Pelagius was overwhelmingly rejected, it was split on Augustine. Right? So time marches on, time goes on, time rolls on. Till finally, around 15th or 16th century, this dude named Martin Luther stamps a series of documents on the door to a chapel and the Reformation has started. And so him, John Calvin, as they are formulating the Christian doctrine and reforming the church, all these brothers cite Augustine as their influence for doctrine. So even though Augustine didn't win in his day, it was like a split decision, ultimately history records him winning out because the reformers have been influenced by his view of sin and the need for God's grace. And so my brothers and sisters, as I conclude this, I got about seven minutes left. This is, this is the three battles that were fought by African church fathers that have forever shaped our Christian faith. Because of Tertullian, we understand the Trinity. Because of Athanasius, we understand that Christ is eternal, the Son of God. And then because of Augustine, we, we know that, man, we need God's grace for salvation. We cannot save ourselves. We are sinners on a one-way ticket to hell with gasoline draws on. <laughs> but, but God. But God. So that's it. That's, that's all I have. I got about seven minutes, well, six minutes now. This will be a great time for questions and comments. George, I got a question. Just in terms of contrast, is Pelagius doctrine um, still influence religion? Uh, religion, you know, faith, belief systems. I mean, not in terms of Christian doctrine, but I will say this from a <clears throat> from a postmodern standpoint. I think John Locke was a guy that believed in what's called tabula rasa, which means, which means blank slate, right? So secularists, postmodernists do believe that human beings are not born evil. They believe that we're born with blank slates. So I'm born <coughs> neutral. I can choose to do wrong or not. So even though this is not widespread in, 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 in Christian circles, in secular circles, we can see like that man being neutral. Spiritualist. Mm -hmm. George, That's okay. Can I add to that? Sure, come on. I think also another, not quite exactly fully there, but Arminianism would argue that we can add something to our salvation, so we need the grace of God, but we also have to... Ooh 
do something towards that, were able to, to do something towards that even, which is what the reformers were fighting against when they put up the five solas, grace alone, faith alone, um, Christ alone, all those. And the, the necessity of affirming that it is truly grace alone and that we can't add anything, that's where they're pulling from Augustine and that's where they're fighting a new uh, uh, controversy that had come up by Arian, that we can't add anything. And that's still very present in the church. A lot of Baptist traditions will say, like you can add something, or like Catholicism is huge on that. You have mm -hmm. there is a certain amount of good work that you do that adds towards your salvation, um, and just affirming Romans six: we were dead in our sin and trespasses, and that's when God saved us, and not because of something we had already done. And we do good works, but those are always an outflow of what's already. So I do want to clarify something because with us being Presbyterian or Reformed, like there's been this tension between Arminius and Calvinism for centuries. So I do want to clarify this. Calvinism is not Pelagianism. This is why I say that. Arminius and Calvinists both believe, they all believe the same things. That we're sinners, we need God's grace, God pursued us, and we can't save ourselves. The issue comes into the comes into faith. Calvinists believe that uh, or reformers, Presbyterians, etc., believe that. God gave me the faith to believe and he gave me that faith to believe because I'm the elect and his salvation is limited to the elect alone. Arminius believe that even though I'm a sinner and God pursues me, God gives common grace for all men to respond. So even though I don't save myself and I can't pursue God, he pursues me when the word of the Lord is given to me, common grace allows me to reject or accept. And so this is where Calvinists and Arminius disagree. In fact, even going forward with that and just giving some more context with this belief is whereas Calvinists believe salvation is limited in scope and application, Arminius believe that the atonement or God's grace is universal in scope, but limited in application. So it's enough to save the sins of the entire world but it's limited in those that will receive it because of God's election, predestination, and foreknowledge. So as a result, these are, Pelagianism is not Arminianism. As a result, Calvinism and Arminius are not, are not heretical, but Pelagianism is. So I just wanted to clarify that. You tell me Athanasius and Tertullian and these guys. So the whole premise is God is one, right? So they want to uphold this idea that God is one that we see all the way going back to Judaism. And so they saw the Trinity as kind of like a distortion of that truth. So in their attempts to oversimplify this belief, they want them going into error. And I do want to say this too, because she says something that triggered a thought in my mind. Jehovah's Witnesses are like Arius. So Jehovah's Witnesses believe this. 
They believe that Jesus was created as the first created being by Jehovah and that he was a human, not a God. So for some urban apologetic, quote unquote, when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, keep this in mind because they believe a similar thing of Arius. So in a way, Arius's, my, uh, Arius's theory lives on in a way with Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and it's, to connect that to whoever's question was about what scriptures they use, that's why the Jehovah's Witness will tell you that John 1.1 1, 1 is mistranslated in mm, the Bible. They really because will. that's where, that's the clearest statement in scripture that God, that Jesus is God eternally. That in Hebrews 1. And it would be really technical <laughs> to try to explain to them why they're wrong. They are wrong, completely wrong about that. But another thing to just say is all these guys were Greek speakers, right? They had the text in their original language, None, and they all got it, right? They got that the word is God is how the text reads. So you can remind them of that because this is an ancient controversy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Y'all, I would love to keep going, but it is 946, and some of y'all got to get kiddos. Thank y'all so much. And before we go, Sir G has an announcement.